Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you, and I'd invite you to turning your copies of God's Word to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 8. We're continuing our studies of Mark's gospel, and we uh, continue to see Jesus, at least here in the beginning, in in Gentile regions, showing uh, grace in these places. Mark chapter 8. I'm sorry, you can find that on page uh, 1161 in the Pew Bible, if that's helpful. Mark chapter 8. And we'll read verses 1 through 21. Listen to God's word. It says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about four thousand, excuse me, and he sent them away. Immediately, and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? Amen. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, please help us to understand. Help us to understand your word and to get a benefit from it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, during my childhood, if you can believe it, 
Uh, at times, I found myself in hot water for jobs or responsibilities that I had left unperformed. Maybe I hadn't taken out the trash or hadn't washed the dishes or hadn't finished my homework. And when I was called to account for these failures, uh, for some reason, I, I labored under the notion that I might be able to talk my way out of trouble. I had this brilliant line that I was pretty sure should basically be able to function as, as a get-out-of-jail-free card. I would say to my parents or my teacher or whoever the authority figure was, well, I forgot. I forgot. However, it never seemed to do much good. Because as it turns out, forgetting, forgetting is not a morally neutral action. Uh, no parent wants to be told by their child, I forgot. No school handbook lists forgetfulness among sort of the extenuating circumstances that might get you an extension on an assignment. And this shouldn't come as a surprise because remembering, remembering is a command given throughout the scriptures. And as we'll see in our passage, uh, biblically, uh, to remember is more, more than being able to recall certain facts. Uh, remembering is active. You imagine maybe a scene where a couple has, has come in for marriage counseling and the counselor says to them, you need to remember your vows. It's not just remembering that form of words, but the counselor is saying you need to remember and act and live out those vows that you've made. The psalmist will at times call God to remember his covenant. I think especially Psalm 89, where things are not going good for Israel. And the psalmist says, God, don't you remember? Don't you remember the covenant that you made? And our passage has for us warnings Warnings of being spiritually forgetful, of forgetting Christ's goodness, and forgetting uh, certain dangers in the Christian life. And that really brings us to the main call of our passage. That is to remember and embrace what God has done in Christ. Uh, to remember and to embrace, that is to call to mind and embrace it. Act as if it matters. Uh, and, and let it affect the way that you live. Remember and embrace what God has done in Christ. And if you're following along in the bulletin, you can see the, the three um, reminders that we have in this passage. First, in verses 1 to 9, uh, we need to remember the character of Jesus. Second, in 10 to 13, remember the danger of unbelief. And then finally, in verses 14 to 21, remember the danger of indifference. These are the three things that we need to remember this morning. And first in verses 1 to 9, remember the character of Jesus. And as we often do, we'll just take a moment to sort of get our bearings in this text. I hope uh, and I expect uh, that these first nine verses uh, rang some bells in your memory. I hope that they uh, called to mind uh, something that you've seen before. 
Perhaps the beginning of our passage brought to mind the, the words of the late great baseball manager, Yogi Berra. It's deja vu all over again. Because, of course, remember, five weeks ago, we read about Jesus spreading a table for the 5,000-plus people who had followed him. Even as I began to read, I got this pit in my stomach, and I said, am I in Mark 6? Have I turned to the right passage? I, I had, but there's so many similarities, aren't there? We learned how Jesus had compassion on the crowds and miraculously multiplied the the small provision of his disciples. We saw that there were baskets full left over. And then we see it in our text uh, all over again. There are some differences in the details, yes, but let's be honest. uh, The similarities, uh, the points of continuity are quite striking, aren't they? And we might ask, well, why this repetition? Why did Jesus do it all over again? And the clue to our answer is is found in the three words that begin our text. Chapter 8, verse 1, in those days. You see, chronology is not always, or or even primarily, uh, the (coughs) the organizing principle in the Gospels. Now, that's why sometimes in Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John to a lesser degree, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you might find the same event in different places because the, the evangelists ha- are, are organizing the material, not chronologically, always. But Mark does connect this chronologically. We see in those days, And so we see that this feeding of the 4,000 is connected with the mission that Jesus has been on for the last several weeks. Remember, we saw both in his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf man from the Decapolis that Christ came as a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 49, 6. And we're still in those days. We're still in that region Jesus is in the Decapolis, the the Gentile region on the east side of Lake Galilee. And therefore, therefore we can infer that that the multitude that gathered around Jesus is a Gentile multitude. And we see here that this Gentile crowd has the same need and the same supply as the Jewish multitude that gathered in Mark chapter 6. Both Jews and Gentiles need bread from heaven. And Mark shows us that, Jesus, that in Jesus, Isaiah 25, 6, finds its fulfillment. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, for all peoples, Jew and Gentile, a feast of rich food. And so that's, that's where we are. That's why we have these two miracles. But as we see what Mark is doing in this larger section of the gospel, we see a repeated miracle and we see, and we see a repeated failure on the part of the disciples to understand. And so we'll move next to consider the disciples' forgetfulness. The disciples' forgetfulness. In chapter 6, 52, there's the feeding of the 5,000 and then uh, Jesus walks to them on the water and they're afraid. And we read in chapter 6, verse 52, a sobering analysis of the disciples after the feeding. 
652, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And we'll see at several points in our passage uh, that the disciples are not yet past this issue. We don't know exactly how much time has elapsed since the feeding of the 5,000. But whatever the time frame, the question that the disciples ask in verse 4 is almost staggering, isn't it? The disciples asked Jesus, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? I think perhaps Mark expects us to to gasp or, or laugh. How can the disciples ask this? We can perhaps be, forgive the disciples' slowness of heart during the first feeding. We can understand why there they were concerned about the lack of bread. But the disciples had seen Jesus feed the multitude. They'd been involved in Jesus feeding the multitude. They'd enjoyed the fruit of Jesus feeding the multitude as they too were satisfied. And now they look at this Gentile multitude and they seem to say, well, what can we do, Jesus? Where can we find this much bread in the wilderness? And the question, it, it might even be more pointed than it appears in our text. Uh, one commentator says the Greek of verse 4 might better be translated, for who? For who is able to satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Later in the chapter, when the disciples are in the boat, we'll learn that they hadn't forgotten the facts, the facts of the first feeding. They're able to remember in verse 19 that they had taken up 12 baskets of fragments. The issue isn't that they'd forgotten the the reality of Jesus' gracious character and power, but they had forgotten to act on that reality. They said, who's able to satisfy these people with bread? And while at first, while at first to us, the disciples' forgetfulness, it may seem unbelievable. I think that a moment's self-reflection and self-examination may prove that we are more like the disciples than we'd care to admit. If someone came up to you on the street I know this won't happen, but someone comes up to you on the street and says, excuse me, sir or or ma'am, I was wondering, could you tell me, uh, are there more gods than one? We all know the answer to that. We might even quote Westminster Catechism number five. There is but one only, the living and true God. We know that to be true. Brothers and sisters, have you ever set up another God in your heart? Have you ever set up yourself as God and acted as if there was not but one only living and true God? Surely we would all affirm, we would all affirm the the omnipotence of God, that He is all-powerful and that God can do all things. And the more seasoned Christians among us might be able to give us uh, testimonies of when God's omnipotence rescued them from trials and difficulties. But ask yourself, even after experiencing the rescue of God, weren't you subsequently tempted to doubt God's omnipotence? To doubt His goodness? To doubt that He would again act on your behalf? We are so much 
so much like our fathers in Israel. We can experience this this mighty act of redemption. We can come out of Egypt and then we'll say in the wilderness, uh, as, as in Psalm 78, 19, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Yes, God acted once, but but can he act again? One commentator writes, as a matter of fact, even mature Christians, which the disciples at this time were certainly not, but even mature Christians do often doubt the power of God after they have had a striking experience of it. You see, it turns out That when we see the disciples' forgetfulness of the power and the character of Jesus, brothers and sisters, we are looking at a mirror. Surely this has been our experience too. We know intellectually God's character. Uh, If you were in Sabbath school class last week, you might even be able to rattle off uh, some of the, the attributes of God. But so often we live as if that were not true. We forget in a biblical sense. We forget to act as if God is good, as if He is gracious, as if He is powerful. We quickly forget it all. We see the disciples' forgetfulness, even our forgetfulness in the question of verse 4. How how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? We see the disciples' forgetfulness. But next, next we see Jesus' character, the character of Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, I have compassion. I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar We see here that Jesus knows his people. He knows his people. It's not my observation, but one of my professors. Uh, But can you see that knowledge of Jesus? He's been with them for three days, but he wasn't aloof. He knew where they were from. He knew that some of them had traveled a far distance. And he was concerned for them. If you've ever been to like a a conference with 4,000 people, I doubt very much that you expect to get a lot of face time uh, with, with the, the keynote speaker. And you certainly don't expect the keynote speaker to know where you're from, uh, to know how your journey was, and to know your needs along the way. But Jesus knows his people. But just as important, maybe, maybe better, I don't know, we see his compassion. He says, I have compassion. This is Jesus' own self-testimony. It's not a a third-party analysis that that Jesus, he seems to be a compassionate fellow. No, he says, I have compassion. Uh, Remember again, this is that that visceral uh, gut reaction from deep within. Uh, The word compassion speaks of a feeling uh, from our deepest internal organs. Jesus has compassion. It's striking. It's striking, I think, that over the last several weeks in Mark's Gospel, the compassion of Jesus has been gloriously displayed. We looked at the compassion of Jesus as He spread a table for the 5,000. 
we've heard the compassionate words of Jesus as he visited his disciples on the water, saying, be of good cheer, I am, do not be afraid. Jesus showed his compassion, uh, rescuing the demon-possessed daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. Last week, we saw the compassion of Jesus as he sighed. He sighed over the effects of the fall and he healed, he healed that deaf man in the Decapolis. We'll see Jesus' compassion again next week as he gives sight to the blind and we see it here this morning. Verse 12, I have compassion. It's almost as if Mark wants us to remember something. It's almost as if Mark wants us to remember something about our Savior. As many times as we have been confronted with difficulty and the pain of life in this fallen world in Mark's gospel, we have also seen the power and the compassion of Jesus to care for his people. That's our last month's worth of studies. And over the last month, haven't you over and over and over again found yourself saying, I need the compassion of Jesus. I need a compassionate Savior to forgive my sins. I need a compassionate Savior to supply all my needs. And He continues to be compassionate. It's who He is. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, isn't that good news? We have daily compassion and daily mercies for our daily trials in this sinful world. You have not, you cannot, you will not exhaust the compassion nor the power of Jesus, nor the power of Jesus. This passage calls you to remember, to remember the character of Jesus. But as we move on, we see that it also warns us, doesn't it? It warns us of of danger, which we'll see under our second heading. Remember the danger of unbelief. Remember the danger of unbelief. And this especially we'll see in verses 10 to 13. It's a a somewhat unusual scene in these verses. Uh, Jesus gets in the boat, sails across the lake, has what appears to be a a two-sentence interaction with the Pharisees, gets back in the boat, and sails away. But these are important verses. These are verses that warn us, and they call us to remember the danger of unbelief. And as we look at these verses, we we see first an antagonistic encounter. Uh, There's great antagonism here. We can see it uh, right from the get-go, that the Pharisees came to Jesus uh, looking for a fight. As soon as Jesus gets off the boat, they they march out to him uh, and sort of accost him. Uh, It's like maybe something you might see on the news where like a plane lands and there's a criminal on the plane and they they walk off and they're greeted uh, by this this show of force from the local police. Uh, Jesus steps off the boat and he's greeted by these Pharisees who have marched out to him. They marched out to him to dispute Earlier in the gospel, we, we, we know that there's, there's serious things um, uh, going on behind their question, but they've been sort of veiled, veiled as genuine questions. Formerly, they've been saying, you know, why do your disciples eat with the tax collectors and sinners in chapter 2? Or 
Why don't your disciples fast? We're, we're just wondering. Chapter 7, verse 5, why don't your disciples follow the tradition of the elders? But now they've come looking for a fight. They're not asking questions anymore. They're making demands. The Pharisees came out again to dispute with him, seeking from him, demanding from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now we're testing it. It could just be as well a trapping him. They're laying a trap for Jesus. They're looking for a sign. Often in our vocabulary and parlance, we use the term a sign and miracle interchangeably, especially because of what we see in, in John's gospel, those seven miracles that John calls signs. Uh, but that's not what's going on here. Mark doesn't really use that vocabulary. He uses the language of miracle. And many of the Pharisees, and that's not what the Pharisees are asking for. Because many of the Pharisees had been eyewitnesses to the miracles of Jesus. The Pharisees were there when the paralytic had been let down through the roof. And Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And arise, take up your bed and walk. Uh, the Pharisees were in the synagogue in, in chapter 3. When Jesus, on the Sabbath, healed the man who had the withered hand. And certainly, certainly they would have heard some of the other reports of Jesus other miracles. Uh, and in this question, they're saying in effect, uh, that is not good enough. Uh, we need something more. Something more from you. The sign from heaven. It, it either meant uh, some sort of visi visible, astronomical event up in the sky uh, that would prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Or, or perhaps uh, from the heaven could, could sort of be taken as, as being from God. Give us a sign from God, an audible voice from God, that you are who you say you are. It's noteworthy then, isn't it? That in the Gospels, we actually have both of these things. In Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was a sign in heaven. Matthew 2.2, 2, the wise men from the east said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Later in, in 2.9, Matthew 2.9, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So they saw the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We've also seen, or heard rather, in Mark's gospel, an audible voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism. Mark 1.11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus denies their request for a sign. Not because he was unable to perform these signs. Uh, not because he's afraid that he's going to be exposed as a fraud. But because these signs would have proved ineffective against an unbelieving heart. The Pharisees had already made up their mind. Uh, the commentator Eckerd Schnabel writes, The Pharisees and the people they represent demand a sign as an excuse for refusing to draw the conclusions from the evidence available to them in Jesus' teaching. 
in ministry. The sign was already there, but they would refuse to see it. This is an antagonistic encounter. And second, second, we see from Jesus a strong lament. A strong lament. Uh, For the second week in a row, we see Jesus sigh at the effects of sin. Uh, Last week, He sighed at the physical deafness in that man from the Decapolis. And this week, the spiritual deafness, the willful disbelief of the Pharisees draws from Jesus a deep sigh. Jesus sees the unbelief of the Pharisees. He he sees the, (coughs) the, the test or the trap that they've set for him. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? And the reference uh, to this generation is to call our mind back to the wilderness wanderings of Israel. That's why we sang those sobering words from Psalm 95, verses 7 and following. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. That's when Israel grumbled, asking for bread and asking for water. It says, "Don't, don't harden your hearts when your father's Put me to the test. They're putting Jesus to the test. And you see, that's what Israel had done of old. They put God to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had not seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation. Jesus is saying, that's who you are. You are uh, like fault finders coming to contend with the Almighty, to borrow the language of Job. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Jesus' whole life and ministry signified his identity. No sign would ever convince such hard-hearted men. Therefore, none would be given. They demanded signs, but Jesus showed compassion. If they did not recognize that this was the way God was revealing himself in Jesus, then they must remain in their blindness. Jesus denied their request. No sign will be given. And he got in a boat and left. Verse 12, Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them. And getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. This is a heartbreaking and a sobering, sobering scene. Jesus Sailing away from these hard-hearted Pharisees. Earlier in Mark, uh, when the Pharisees had accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan, he warned them. He said, assuredly, I say to you, words which we find again in our text. This is the only time we've heard that phrase in our passage. Here in our text, assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given And here, earlier in Mark 3.28, when Jesus warned them, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Jesus had warned them. He said, Assuredly I say to you, your persistent, unbelief, your willful unbelief in the face of revelation, in the face of my miracles, in the face of my teaching, will prove unpardonable. 
Remember, we saw in that study, it's not unpardonable because of lack of grace in God or power in God, but it's unpardonable because the sinner does not come for pardon. Last week, when Jesus came again to the region of the Decapolis, uh, we noted how exciting and how joyous it was that they came to Jesus for grace when formerly they had begged him to leave. And we see that Jesus is willing to offer himself again and again to sinners. But there is a point. There is a point when Jesus will let unbelievers be confirmed in their unbelief. The gospel offer of forgiveness and pardon by faith in Christ, it is always genuine. It is always genuine every time you hear it. God is in earnest when he says, I desire men everywhere to repent. But understand this as well. The gospel offer is always urgent. It is always urgent. We won't see the Pharisees again until the last week of Jesus' life and ministry in Jerusalem. By their persistent and willful unbelief, They have separated themselves from Christ and from His grace. And if you have never come to Christ, if you have rejected His offer of grace and pardon every time it's been presented, you need to look at this picture in verse 13. Jesus gets in the boat and He sails away. Pardon and forgiveness sailing away. Dear friends, today, today is the day of salvation. Young people, young people, can you see, can you see how how serious this is? Jesus offers you grace and pardon and forgiveness and he offers it today. And he wants you to embrace him. He wants you to receive his compassion. And if you keep saying no, if you keep saying no, I'm not interested in your grace. I'm not interested in your compassion. The day may come when Jesus will sail away. And it'll be too late. This is serious. It's so serious. Mark wants us to see this. I've lost my... The Hartzlers gave me Kleenexes last week and I lost them under the pulpit. Mark wants us to see this. He wants us to remember the danger of unbelief and to remember the urgency of the gospel offer and the urgency of the call to come to Christ in faith. There's the, the, we need to remember the danger of unbelief. But there's one more warning in this text. One more warning that we need to be reminded of. There's the warning of, of, of just ardent disbelief. But here there's the warning against indifference. A sleepiness in the Christian life that could also prove just as fatal. And so we'll see under our final heading, remember, remember the danger of indifference. Verses 14 to 21. And first here we see a timely warning. A timely warning. 
with Jesus, the, the disciples uh, go across Lake Galilee and, and suddenly they, they realize that many of us have done, uh, that w- they realize that they've done what many of us have done uh, before setting out on a road trip. Uh, they didn't pack any snacks. Now be sure this isn't a, a, a serious situation. It's, it's like a few hours to row across the lake. It's like setting out for Indianapolis and realizing uh, you don't have snacks. Like, you're going to make it. Uh, but they realize they don't have snacks. They, they don't have bread. And Jesus, he, he's not concerned with their lack of bread. They're, they're going to be just fine. But he takes the topic of bread. He takes the topic of bread and he gives a, a warning in, in illustrative language. Verse 15, Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Of Herod. I about said heresy. Yeah, that's leaven too, but the leaven of Herod. Leaven is often representative in Scripture of, of sin and uncleanness. 1 Corinthians 5.8, uh, Paul contrasts the, the leaven of evil and malice uh, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Jesus says, watch out. Uh, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. You see, Jesus has just had a, a thoroughly negative interaction with the Pharisees uh, when they demanded a sign from him. And, and it's possible, it's even likely that Jesus has been on this Gentile mission because he was in danger from Herod Antipas, who had beheaded John. Uh, Both Herod and the Pharisees had proved uh, completely unbelieving. And Jesus said to his disciples, watch out. Be, uh, take heed. The the danger of unbelief of the Pharisees and the unbelief of Herod, he's saying to his disciples, it's closer to you than you may realize. And this is certainly the case. Because the disciples again show themselves dull of mind and, and, and still without understanding. Verse 16, and they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. They're quite sure. They're quite sure that Jesus has some sort of lesson for them about the bread. The disciples completely missed the point of his warning. Again, James Edwards comments, the disciples... Excuse me, the disciples are anxious about their lack of bread. But Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith. This is a timely warning, and it's followed by a stern rebuke. A stern rebuke. Jesus meets this discussion of the disciples about bread with several pointed questions asked in quick succession. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? He asked them about the bread. When I fed the 5,000, how many baskets? They said 12. When I fed the the 4,000, how many baskets? They said seven. And he closes. How is it that you do not understand? The disciples showed an indifference to the warnings of Jesus. Uh, they seemed to think that the warnings against uh, unbelief were, were for the Pharisees or for Herod and company, but certainly not for them. 
Why would Jesus need to warn them? They're in the boat. After all, these are the disciples. They've been called by Jesus and been with Jesus. Why on earth would they need to worry about unbelief? They say, no, Jesus must be talking about something else. Can you see their indifference to these warnings? More importantly, can you see how that indifference could creep into your life? The disciples missed the seriousness and the applicability of Jesus warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. They also missed the the meaning of Jesus feeding miracles. Yes, they remembered the details, uh, but they failed to appropriate their messes that, that even if they were in trouble, which they're not, they're going to make it, but even if they were in trouble, even if they did suddenly need bread, Jesus is saying, haven't we been through this twice already? Jesus could and would supply all their needs. So Jesus shows by his question that the disciples are are like the rebellious people in Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel 12, 2. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. I wonder... Have any of you had seasons in your Christian life like the disciples? Seasons of indifference to the warnings of Scripture? Are any of you in such a season? Yes, you you might be faithful to come to church and social events in the congregation. You're, You're in the boat, as it were. You dutifully listen to sermons. Occasionally you read a chapter of Proverbs or a a page from Spurgeon's morning and evening devotions to get helpful hints for your day. Dear friend, this will count for nothing if in the final analysis you're shown to be truly spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, And he may be saying to some of you, wake up. Wake up to the danger of unbelief. Wake up to the dangers of indifference. They will both, it will both prove deadly. These questions, they they function as a stern rebuke. But be sure of this. Be sure of this. They are also a loving rebuke. They are also a loving rebuke. Jesus is concerned for his disciples, and he wants to do them good. And as we look especially at two of the questions that Jesus puts to his disciples, uh, we can begin to see how it is that Jesus wants to do them good. And we can begin to see his, his purposes of grace. He asks them in verse 18, in verse 18, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Last week, we saw Jesus heal a deaf man in the Decapolis. In our next study, we'll see Jesus heal a blind man at Bethsaida. These disciples were with the great physician, and his concern is followed by care. Yes, they're they're sleepy, we might say, in their Christian walk, but they're still with Jesus. He hasn't sailed away. Yes, uh, they're they're showing themselves uh, to not yet understand, 
But Jesus is patient with them. Jesus is patient with his people. Our Heavenly Father is patient with his sons and daughters. And if you find that you lack understanding, uh, if you find that that you are uh, uh, not seeing like you should, not hearing like you should, then go to Jesus. Go to the one who can give hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind and say, would you show that compassion on me? Would you show that grace for me? These are serious warnings. Warnings against unbelief and indifference. But they're given in love and with a genuine desire that they would drive each of us to Christ for grace. And that's why we had that compassion of Jesus displayed so gloriously in our opening verses. We're not just called to flee from unbelief or to flee from indifference, but to flee to the compassionate Savior who can rescue us and save us and show grace towards His people. A Savior whose compassions fail not, but are new every morning. And so, brothers and sisters, remember this, Jesus. Remember that He's compassionate. Remember that you need to flee unbelief and flee indifference and embrace this Christ and embrace what God has done in Him. Embrace that in Christ, God has shown compassion and care to the needy and the helpless. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, this has been a challenging passage. It's challenging to be confronted with our natural slowness, uh, with our natural unbelief. And so we thank you for that sight and that, that testimony from Christ's own lips. I have compassion on the multitude. Oh Lord Jesus, we stand in need of your compassion. And uh, we pray that you would show it to each one here. Especially God, if there be any here who are outside of Christ, any who are strangers to grace and strangers to your compassion, oh, would you wake them up? Shake them out of their stupor and out of their sleep and cause them to embrace Christ as he's offered to us in this passage. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.